0: From American Public Media, this is Finding Home, 50 Years of International Adoption, an American Radio Works documentary. I'm Deborah Amos. Americans adopt more than 20,000 children from abroad each year.
1: How different our lives were. And not because I'd gone to America, but because I'd gone to a family.
0: The flow of children began with Korean War orphans. Many thrived. Some longed for the culture they lost.
2: I'm dying to speak my mother tongue.
0: Today, more parents try to help their children connect with their birth culture. The more we can let him make the choice of who
3: he wants to be as an adult, the better I feel like we'll be doing our job as parents.
0: But as international adoption grows, parents face new risks. It's basically a
4: bait-and-switch operation. The children they're pulling you in with, aren't available for
0: adoption. In the coming hour, Finding Home. First, this news update. From American public media, this is Finding Home, 50 years of international adoption from American Radio Works. I'm Deborah Amos. In the past decade, the number of foreign children adopted by Americans has nearly tripled. Last year, Americans adopted nearly 23,000 children. Most come from poor and troubled parts of the world, and a life with a family in America offers new hope, but it also means the loss of their birth culture. Fifty years of experience with international adoption has led to new approaches in bringing up a multicultural child. The success of international adoption brings perils, too. The past few years have seen an explosion in adoption groups and companies competing for clients, often over the Internet. Many companies are honest, but when they're not, it's hard to stop them from preying on families eager to adopt. Michael Montgomery reports.
5: Two years ago, P.J. Whiskyman was trolling the Internet when she chanced on some striking photographs of children. They were on a website devoted to finding homes in America for orphans overseas.
4: I was completely a novice, so I just started looking through, and uh, before I knew it, I saw a couple of girls that I guess my heart just went out for, and uh, it went from there.
5: Whiskeyman lives in Lidditz, Pennsylvania, with her husband and four of their six children. The other two are grown. Whiskeyman is 46 and a writer. Even with such a lively household, the images of the orphans nagged at her. It was as if she could see the girls sitting on her living room couch and hear their voices.
4: This is Vika. She looks a lot to me like our daughter. Uh, Like she would be a little older sister for her. She would have been. A little impish smile and just something about... I can't explain those things. You know how the heart is. It works different than the mind.
5: Their attachment to the photos led Whiskey Man and her husband, Mike Bard, to try to adopt the girls. And that led them to the California adoption company that posted the girls' photos on the Internet, Unona USA.
4: We fell in love, and when I called Unona about these girls, you know, the first thing they told me the day I called them in November was, oh, well, there's some other parents who have expressed interest in those girls, and you better send your down payment (laughs) immediately if you want, because the first one to get their money in will will hold the children for them. And I remember, you know, calling Mike, and we scrambled to get, it was like a Friday, to wire them the first down payment of like $7,500 to hold these girls.
5: The family took out a second mortgage on their home to cover the costs and signed a contract, all without ever meeting a Unona representative and with only scant information about the girls. That's not unusual today in the world of international adoption. As the number of overseas adoptions has exploded, so too has the number of companies battling for business across the country, often in cyberspace. It's a market worth hundreds of millions of dollars each year.
6: It's a significant amount of money.
5: Trish Maskew is president of Ethica, a group that lobbies for better rules governing adoption. Maskew says as the adoption industry has expanded, government regulations have not kept up.
6: We like to say that your neighborhood health club is probably more heavily regulated than anybody who's doing adoption in the United States.
5: Maskew says most adoptions are set up by reputable companies and work out well. But there have also been scandals involving child trafficking and Internet scams that prey on prospective parents. P.J. Whiskeyman traveled to Ukraine with her husband, expecting to return home with two new daughters. But instead, they could never locate Vika, the girl with the smile. The other girl wasn't available either. The couple refused to consider other children and returned home empty-handed.
4: We got suckered in. We would never have gone if it hadn't been for the picture and the promise.
5: Many large adoption agencies no longer post orphans' photos on the Internet, but not Unona. The company maintains more than 20 different websites with pages and pages of orphans' photos, flashy graphics, and mood music. Company president Ivan Jeredev insists the photo listings are necessary to link up prospective parents and orphans.
7: That's the very good instrument to find the parents, because the parents want to see the child, to have information.
5: The, the photo listings that are up, those kids are available. They're not advertisements.
7: No, no they are available. The child is available at the moment we sign the contract. That seems clear enough, but then Jeredev adds a big catch. It's very clear states in our contract. We can't guarantee that the child will be available for your family when you'll be there. In other words, Jaredov
5: claims a particular child is available when prospective parents sign a contract. But that might not be the case months later when the parents go to bring the child home. So if photo listings are so unreliable, why doesn't Unona stop using them?
7: In a word, business. I will lose like uh, 80% of clients. But in this way... They will go to another agency with photo listings, and they will have exactly the same problems. Exactly, you know.
5: Unlike many adoption agencies, Unona is a for-profit company. It's something Unona's founder doesn't hide.
7: It happened not because of charity purposes or something, to tell the truth, because I had to pay my bills.
5: Gerdov says Unona
7: started out small
5: after he moved to the United States from Russia. But the company expanded aggressively on the Internet to compete with larger agencies. By 2001, Unona reported it was handling as many as 400 adoptions a year. Fees ranged as high as $15,000 and $20,000. says he has many happy clients. But P.J. Whiskeyman is disgusted with the company.
4: It's basically a bait-and-switch operation oh, because nice. the children they're pulling you in with aren't available for adoption.
5: Since posting her story on the Internet, Whiskeyman says she's emailed or spoken with dozens of other families who say they were duped by Unona and are out thousands of dollars. They include Mary Purdue. Purdue is 55 and a machine operator in a factory in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. She's divorced with two adult daughters, but always had wanted a son. Four years ago, Purdue came across the photo of a boy on a Unona website.
8: Why he... Was cuter than the next guy, he just struck me. Just a, a real thick head of hair and dimples and just a, a smiley, happy little boy.
5: Victor was a seven year old boy living in an orphanage in Russia. Purdue signed a contract and placed a deposit to put Victor on hold. Then the problem started. Unona began losing documents and failed to return emails and phone calls. Hello,
8: this is Mary Purdue. Mary,
5: so Purdue started recording her phone calls to Unona.
8: I didn't go into this thinking I was gonna have somebody hold my hand twenty-four hours a day. Oh yeah. But I did expect information and honesty maybe?
5: Purdue soon discovered some yeah. secrets about Unona. Under oh. contract, Unona was listed as an adoption agency, but Unona wasn't a licensed agency at all. The company operates through a loophole in California law that allows so-called facilitators to arrange adoptions for families across the nation, virtually unregulated. Purdue also heard that Unona was using bribes for judges overseas. She asked the Unona representative who was handling Victor's case about payoffs.
8: She told me that, that Unona had bribed the judge and they're still not getting anywhere with her. But you know what, Mary Kazakhstan's judges are all bribed by us. Oh, sure. I know it's everywhere. Kazakhstan, it's especially Russia is kind of the same thing.
5: But Mary Purdue says she doesn't know whether the company paid off judges in her case. When Purdue finally was cleared to travel to Russia, she was told not to mention Yunona to any officials and to take nine thousand dollars in cash to give company representatives. At last, the Purdues brought Victor to his new home in Iowa, but their troubles were just beginning.
8: Friday, July 25th, 2003.
5: <laughs> Unona told Mary Purdue that Victor was gentle and a deep sleeper, but in Iowa she discovered a different child, a boy now eight who never slept for more than four hours, was obsessed with fire and knives, and prone to long, violent rages.
8: I taped that because nobody believed that he would scream for hours. That was a personal best for him. That was three and a half hours long.
5: Victor often focused his rage on Kim, Mary's older daughter, who's disabled and in a wheelchair.
8: He threatened to eviscerate her. Yeah. He popped her in the mouth for no reason. He would push her wheelchair into corners and into furniture, and I just knew he was going to open that basement door one day when I was
5: at work and
8: push her down there.
5: A psychologist diagnosed Victor with numerous emotional disorders and concluded he had been severely abused and physically scarred in Russia.
8: He had scars all over his head. and. We couldn't get it out of him what it was. Come to find out, he was given punishment by being put in a great big garbage, plastic garbage can full of water, and they closed the lid.
5: For 18 months, the Purdue's tried counseling and even residential treatment. Nothing worked. So last year, with a heavy heart, Mary gave up custody of Victor. An Iowa judge sent the boy to a special facility where he lives as a ward of the state. The Purdue's believe Unona and the Russian orphanage concealed Victor's medical history to make him more marketable. I made it
8: crystal clear that I wanted a healthy child. At the very best, they lied. At the very worst, they, they're doing everything illegal.
5: The Purdue's thought about filing a lawsuit, but that was too expensive, especially since the adoption had cost about $25,000. They did tell their story to the FBI, which has been investigating Unona. Other families have complained to the state of California, but earlier this year, state investigators determined they had no enforcement power over Unona since it's not a licensed adoption agency. Ivan Jerdov claims he's been cleared by the state of California. He says all risks, including the possibility that medical information about the child is unreliable, are enshrined in UNONUS contracts with parents. But Jaredif doesn't deny using bribes. It's everywhere. It's reality. He says payoffs are necessary for all agencies in order to circumvent Soviet-era laws and rescue children from wretched conditions. Jaredif says he's not
7: violating U.S. law because independent coordinators make the actual payments. We don't pay, you know. But the coordinators must go this, you know. And they pay, yes. They have to pay to a lot of people. Bribes, that's the bribes. The money always find a way to go around. Bribes are a sensitive topic for
5: other more established agencies. Many have signed a voluntary code of practice that forbids such payments. But many of those same agencies routinely require adoptive parents to deliver large amounts of cash when they travel abroad without saying where the money is going.
6: There really is no accounting for most of the money that goes overseas.
5: Ethica's Trish Maskew.
6: Whether that money is paid to an official, to a family member, to a facilitator, to pay, you know, a middleman somewhere to find a child, there are all kinds of schemes that is trafficking. We're we're actually using money to move the child through the system.
5: Maskew says the U.S. has laws against trafficking and bribes, but they're rarely applied to adoptions. New laws could close loopholes for companies like Unona. The United States has signed the Hague Convention on International Adoption. Based on that treaty, the U.S. is drafting regulations that would require agencies to be more open about where their money goes and about orphans' medical histories. But experts say even with the new regulations, parents should carefully research the agencies they work with.
3: You're not placing an order with Amazon.com.
5: Joan Hollinger is an adoption expert at University of California at Berkeley.
3: As sympathetic as as I am and as many people are to prospective parents who get emotionally connected through images to a, a particular child, people have to understand that There are just enormous risks and uncertainties in any kind of adoption.
5: Unona's president says business has dropped since rumors of an FBI investigation started circulating on the Internet. Nevertheless, the company has expanded its offerings. This summer, Unona announced a new program. Its website posted ultrasound images of unborn children in Guatemala, Unona says one day soon the children might be available for adoption.
0: You're listening to Finding Home 50 Years of International Adoption. I'm Deborah Amos. Coming up, war orphans pour out of Korea and transform adoption. The idea that we were
1: transplanting children from one country and culture to another, children of a
0: different race and ethnicity. Those were huge issues. Our program continues in just a moment from American Public Media. From American Public Media, this is Finding Home, 50 years of international adoption from American Radio Works. I'm Deborah Amos. Until the 1950s, foreign adoption was rare in the United States. But after the Korean War ended, international adoption took off as American families took in war orphans. Korea would remain the major sending country to the United States for 40 years. Not until 1995 would it be eclipsed by China. Korean adoptees now make up the largest group of adults who can describe foreign adoption from the inside. And they've influenced how adoptive families raise their children today. Producer Sasha Aslanian looks at how the social experiment of transnational adoption worked out for some of them. Kim park Gregg became part of Korea's global
9: transfer of children as a seven-month-old baby. She was raised in St. Paul, Minnesota, by liberal white parents who she says preferred adoption as a way to create a family. Now a graduate student in American Studies, park Gregg is researching how adoptees were affected by growing up in white homes.
10: Every single person who I've talked to does have something to say about being a person of color in the United States and um, what it's meant for them to grow up as like the only person of color, the only Asian person um, in their town, unless there's one other adoptee that's like their sibling. I think that it's ended up being a, a really important factor for a lot of adoptees. Park Gregg says until recently,
9: research on adoption has focused on the parents and their needs. She's part of a vanguard of researchers trying to see things from the adoptee's perspective. She sifts through old files at the Social Welfare History Archive at the University of Minnesota.
10: There are a number of things that I found in these records that were really hard for me.
9: There are descriptions of plane loads of children leaving Korea in the 1950s to be adopted by people who had never met them. The parents-to-be weren't screened by anybody other than the family minister.
10: Then they have a huge set of files on Harry Holt. And there's some really juicy stuff in those.
9: Harry Holt was a retired farmer and an evangelical Christian from Cresswell, Oregon. When he and his wife, Bertha, learned that the mixed-race sons and daughters of American and British soldiers in post-war Korea were starving, abandoned, and bullied in the streets, they felt called by God to help them. The Holtz got a special act of Congress passed in 1955 to allow them to adopt eight children six more than the law would have allowed. Much of the glory and controversy in the early days of Korean adoption would center on Harry Holt.
6: A
7: mighty big trip for some mighty little folks begins in Seoul, Korea, where a dozen orphans board a plane for the United States. Most of them are being adopted by an American after five months of red tape. Harry Holt... 50, has six tots already, is adopting eight tiny Koreans, and taking four to other Americans.
9: Holt got a tremendous amount of media coverage and was flooded with requests from other families. In her memoir, Bertha Holt writes that visitors constantly showed up at their home in Oregon to talk with her husband about how they could adopt a child. She writes, Harry could never say no to any of these visitors because he could not forget the tiny, outstretched arms of the children still in Korea. He continued to adopt children and bring them back by the plane load to other Christian families waiting back home. Meanwhile, a watchdog group called International Social Service, or ISS, was keeping careful tabs on this new frontier of adoption.
10: So this is like newspaper accounts that kind of talk about Holt going off to get all these kids. Um, I'm sure at ISS they're like, what is going on here? I think that they were very suspicious. Okay, so this is... um. Susan Patisse, she documented a lot of the stuff in these files during these years. And it's really funny because through looking at these files, I really like her. I really started to like her a lot.
6: I'm Susan Pettis. Uh, I live here in Medford, New Jersey in a, a Rotomic community. Since I'm almost 93 years old, it's a nice place to live.
9: Back in the 1950s, Susan Pettis testified twice before Congress, saying these adoptions needed more safeguards, like having trained social workers evaluate prospective parents. Pettis tried to persuade Holt himself. She paid him a personal visit.
6: I went to his home in uh, Oregon, uh, had dinner with him, as a matter of fact, and we was very pleasant. He was a very sincere man, Uh, no question about it. He had somewhat the attitude that he had all the answers, and I think his religion came into this, that uh, if these individuals were born-again Christian, good church members, and the minister would vouch for them as good church members, then the Lord will see that they, they take good care of that child.
9: Holt was undeterred by critics and continued on his mission of bringing Korean children to America until he died in 1964. A letter he recorded for one adoptee survives, though a creative engineer added music later.
8: Martha Sue who was such a sweet looking little kid, and the other little boy was a nice little boy too. And you just both of you laid there, and it was a nice warm day. In fact, it was very hot, and the sun was shining. I remember it very well. It was late in the afternoon. I had been driving all day and a good part of the night before, and I was so tired. And I just prayed the Lord to tell me what to do with you and the other little boy because I couldn't take you home to my home.
9: The Holtz kept scrapbooks on all of their adoptions. Susan Sungum Cox looked through them until she found her picture. She was child number 167. She came to America in 1956.
1: I was almost four years old when I was adopted, and I feel particularly grateful to have as a part of my story having known Mr. Holt briefly as a child and actually living in an orphanage in Incheon. And one day, the orphanage director called and said, we have more babies than we have beds. Can you help us? And so Mr. Holt went to Incheon, and he selected five children to take back with him, and one of the little children was, was me. And uh, he was to tell my parents later that I had a very, very sad face. And he felt that he would not have been able to sleep if he hadn't taken me home. So I um, I have memories of him when I was very, very little and waking up in the night and crying, having a bad dream. And Mr. Holt would come in personally and, and comfort me and talk to me and... Um, He was my grandfather, really, before I had a mother and father of my own.
9: Cox now serves as vice president of Holt International. The agency founded by Holt is still one of the largest private agencies in overseas adoptions. In the 1960s, after Holt died, Cox says the agency did hire professionally trained social workers. But in those early frantic days in the 1950s, there's no question in Cox's mind that Holt saved children desperately in need of families.
1: There were all of these children who had been born to Korean mothers and UN soldier fathers. So they were mixed race. They were certainly not going to be able to blend into society. And in a country that continues, a culture that still really very much um, prefers a, a purity of lineage, that was... That was hugely a problem. The children
9: faced certain discrimination in Korea, but Cox says what would happen to them in America was
1: unknown. The idea that we were transplanting children from one country and culture to another, children of a different race and ethnicity, those were huge issues. And so... That was certainly something that, that opened up the whole process to criticism. And it was, had never been done. And people were saying, and, and particularly within the child welfare community, they would say, well, these are cute babies, they're delightful toddlers. What happens to them when they grow up? And in fact, no one really did know what would happen to them grow up.
9: And now, graduate researcher Kim Park Gregg is asking those children what did happen when they grew up. She's recording their oral histories, like Jennifer Jacobus, in Vancouver, Washington.
8: What was really
9: uh, great growing up in in this family was how accepted I was. uh, Jacobus says her family treated her as one of them, but she didn't feel the same acceptance from her peers. Kids always called
8: me, like, names. racist names and things that I didn't understand. I had no idea, no concept what they were calling me. But I never took it to my parents to ask them to explain it to me or whatever. I just kind of, you know, I just accepted that that was just my lot, you know, because I I had, I took on the role of just being this strong, nothing invincible, nobody was going to touch me or whatever. And I had such a tender heart. And, needed to ask me what I was thinking, what I was feeling, and that's the—that's their big mistake. You know, they just—they didn't know, and I didn't know how to. You know, that's what I'd say to adults that have
9: adopted children or whatever. You know, ask them. When Jennifer Jacobus was adopted in 1956. Adoption experts were skeptical that foreign adoptees would ever fit in. The answer was to Americanize them, effectively to raise them as if they were white. By the time Kim Park Gregg was adopted in the 1970s, parents like hers took a love-is-blind approach to race and color. They believed racial differences should be ignored because they didn't matter. Both attempts failed to prepare kids for a society that was not colorblind. Researcher Rich Lee at the University of Minnesota studies the Korean adoptee experience. He calls it a paradox.
8: Because on the one hand, you have all the privileges associated with being raised in a white family, in a small community, and you don't really see yourself, and your family doesn't necessarily see yourself as a minority or of a different culture. But on the other hand... When you enter into society, you are perceived as a racial minority. And so these are contradictory but true experiences that you're needing to resolve.
9: Lee's research and other studies show it's important for adoptees' well-being for them to feel connected to their birth culture. And times have changed since the early wave of adoptees was encouraged to become all Americans. Lee says adoptive parents today are more aware that their children will struggle with racial identity, so they want to give them the tools to help them. Culture camps and homeland tours are popular. Some parents seek out multicultural neighborhoods, schools, churches, and daycare centers so the children will know other people who look like them. Research shows most international adoptees are doing well in the United States. But for some adoptees, all these good intentions aren't enough
2: adoption It's the only sort of practice in the world where you get separated from your parents. There's a permanent rupture between yourself and your culture, and you're supposed to be grateful.
9: Jane Jong-Trenka is a 33-year-old Korean adoptee. She's deeply critical of international adoption. In the early 70s, when she was adopted, Korea wasn't sending war orphans abroad, but Korean children born to single mothers or poor families. Trenka says if her family had gotten some help, they could have kept her, but poverty forced them to choose adoption. What's unusual about Trenka's story is that her mother managed to write her in the United States, and the two maintained a tenuous correspondence. In 2003, Trenka published a memoir, The Language of Blood, about returning to Korea and reuniting with her mother and older siblings. Trenka is packing up her apartment to leave for Korea on her sixth trip. She's selling off the piano she used to play professionally. Trenka sees it as casting off a symbol of her life as a good girl, the successful Asian adoptee.
2: So this is the adoptive parent's worst nightmare. The adoptee who, like, goes native. <laughs> like, all this piano lesson gone to waste. Trenka's
9: adoptive parents are no longer in contact with her. She expects this move to Korea will be permanent she'll join 100 or so other Korean adoptees from the United States and Europe who have
2: repatriated. It comes from not an exciting tourist mentality. It's not like I'm doing this for my leisure. It's because I'm dying to speak my mother tongue, you know? And the only way I can do it is to go to Korea. It comes from a place of great pain. Hello, this is Jane Trinka, it is june twenty fourth two thousand and five and I am recording from seoul South korea i'm in my Koshitel room at the top of the hill in the Shinchon neighborhood behind the mcdonald's One of my my missions that I do when i 'm out and about is tell people that i 'm adopted and the phrase for that is, I'm an adopted person. And I was kind of mad at myself today, because I sort of forgot to say that. I was shopping, and a woman asked me where I was from. So I told her, I come from the United States. You know, dumb. I was mad at myself. Because that's that's an easy out, and... I want people to know that we exist. How amazing is it? I think that 150,000 to 200,000 Korean children have been sent away from Korea for 50 years and still I run into someone on the street and I look Korean and I don't speak Korean and so they would assume I'm Japanese? Like, what's that about? Maybe people don't know that we exist.
9: Trenka says she's making a new life for herself in Korea. By day, she writes, teaches English, and learns to speak her mother tongue. But at night, she dreams of America. Susan Cox of Holt International was adopted from Korea 16 years before Trenka. Cox accepts that as a mixed-race child, she could not have remained with her mother. She says her mother tried to dye her brown hair blue-black to make her blend in, but finally placed her in the Incheon Orphanage, where Holt took her to America. For Cox, adoption saved her from an orphanage life.
1: The very first time I went back to Korea, I was 24 years old, and I went back to Ilsan, the orphanage where the Holt Orphanage, and it was filled with children who were waiting to be adopted. I also had the opportunity to meet people who were my age, that for whatever reason, they had not been adopted, and they were still at the orphanage. And how different our lives were, and not because I'd gone to America, but because I'd gone to a family. I have married, I've had children, I've had work that is meaningful to me, and I know with certainty that those people who were not adopted would wanted to be in a family.
9: Despite her happy experience being adopted, Cox was curious about her birth family. She eventually placed an ad in a Korean newspaper and located two half-brothers in Korea. She learned her mother
1: had died. My youngest brother, who was with our mother when she died, said the last words that she ever spoke were, you have an older sister, and she went to America. Now, to know that I was the last thing my mother spoke of or thought of before she died is a gift beyond measure and yet at the same time the sadness of that is also um, overwhelming to know that for her whole life I was her secret, that she worried about me, that she thought of me I mean that's the bittersweet. For
9: thousands of children says Cox the only family they'll ever be a part of is through international adoption. Korea popularized the practice, but it's no longer the main sending country. At the Seoul Olympics in 1988, Korea was publicly embarrassed by suggestions it had produced its economic miracle by sending its poor children away. At that time, between seven and 8,000 children were leaving every year. Leaders pledged to promote domestic adoption instead. Today, about 1,700 Korean children are adopted in the United States each year, only surpassed by China, Russia, and Guatemala.
0: You're listening to Finding Home, 50 Years of International Adoption from American Radio Works. I'm Deborah Amos. To hear more entries from Jane Trenka's audio diary in Seoul and find more stories about adoptees revisiting their birth countries, visit our website at AmericanRadioWorks.org. We'd also like to hear your story of international adoption. Tell us at AmericanRadioWorks.org. Major funding for American Radio Works comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Our program continues in just a moment from American Public Media. This is Finding Home, an American Radio Works documentary from American Public Media. I'm Deborah Amos. Fifty years ago, many adoptive parents believed the best thing they could do for a child from overseas was to ignore that child's cultural differences, to help the child become American. But today, more adoptive parents are trying to help their children to know their roots. Some families read books about their child's birth culture or go to culture camps. Some take homeland tours. But very few have relationships with the child's birth family. In fact, one reason people choose to adopt from abroad is so they won't have to deal with the emotional turmoil of sharing the child with the birth mother. But when Laurie Stern and her husband Dan Luke adopted their son Diego from Guatemala, they decided to make his birth family part of their life. They hoped to help Diego bridge the economic and cultural gap that divides the two families. As Laurie and Dan prepared for their most recent trip, producer Ellen Gettler asked them to take us along. Laurie Stern agreed to tell their story.
3: Hi, everybody. Hey, Gabrielle, you made it. Hi, How how are you? Look at the big girls. Oops. Oops. About once a month, we get together with a group of families who've adopted Guatemalan-born children. My name is Diego Maxi Kailuk. Our son Diego is six. He's a Mayan, Tsutsujil Mayan. There are maybe 60,000 Tsutsujiles who live in a couple of small villages in the mountains of Guatemala. Most Tsutsujil are small and strong like he is. As Diego gets older, He's noticing the physical things that set him apart from his friends. That's one of the reasons we wanted to be in a group like this one, because all these kids have something in common, and in a way they're growing up as cousins. A lot of the families in our group really like going to Latin American culture camp with their kids. We respect that. But Diego's culture is complex. He's a Minnesotan. He's an American. He's a North American. He's a Native American. He's a Central American. And he's a Guatemalan-born American. He's also a Tsutsu Mayan. They're all Diego. So we feel like we can give Diego even more authentic information about who he is by spending time in his village. During Diego's adoption, when he was a baby, I stayed with him in Guatemala for nine months. Dan and I went back with him when he was three to visit his biological mother, Isabel shikai Petse, and her three children. Now Diego is six, and we're going there again. It's a Saturday and it's like our fourth or fifth day in Guatemala and we're in Santiago Atitlan at a beautiful hotel called Bamboo. Can you hear that? (laughs) And in a few minutes, who do we expect to show up? Isabel? Isabel. And we don't know um, whether she'll bring the children or how many she'll bring. Um, we're kind of hoping that she'll bring Juan.
11: Juan and me...
3: What's your name, my sister's name? My they were, sisters? They were Julia and Josefa. Julia
2: and... Julia and Josefa and Juan and me are all brothers. Brother and sisters.
3: Getting to Diego's village is spectacular. You take a boat across this huge volcanic lake. There are three volcanoes around it and a dozen small villages. Santiago Atitlan is one of them, and it sprawls from the base of one of the volcanoes to the lake shore. Isabel never wants us to go to her home. Her neighbors don't know about Diego. So our translator and friend, Dolores Ratzan, brings Isabel and her children to us. On the morning she was going to come to our hotel, we waited anxiously. Finally, I heard Sutu Hill voices coming down the path. Let's go see. Let's go see if that's really them. We ran over to say hello. Isabel had brought two of Diego's siblings, Josefa and Juan. Juan, hello,
11: hello. Hey, Diego, there.
3: I was surprised when Diego went right up to Isabel and gave her a big hug. Then she took a step back, looked at him, and started to cry. Later, when we asked Dolores about it, she said Isabel was wishing Diego's sister Julia could have been with us because Julia had loved seeing Diego so much. We'd found out just before we came that Julia had died several months earlier. When Isabel saw Diego, it made her feel sadder about losing Julia. I've asked Isabel many times why she placed Diego for adoption. She always says it's because she can't afford to take care of him. She lives in a cinderblock room with a dirt floor. All she has is a clay pot, a grinding stone, and a thin mattress she sleeps on with the children. She says the children have the same father. I don't even know his name. He was in the military, and now he works as a truck driver in the town on the other side of the volcano. The way Isabel puts it, he comes and goes. At the hotel, she showed Diego, Dan, and me a photo of a man dressed in an army uniform carrying an assault rifle.
6: Oh.
11: (gasps) Who's that?
5: That is your birth father.
11: What do you think? Uh, He's cool. He's cool? Do you like the uh,
10: uniform
3: and the gun?
1: I love guns. I know you do.
3: (laughs) Diego was excited to play soccer with his siblings. He knew it was something they'd have in common.
6: <laughs>
3: <laughs> Here in Santiago de Titlan, Diego could pass for one of the kids in the village. He looks just like everybody else. But he has trouble communicating with his siblings. He speaks only English, and they speak only Tzotzil. While the kids played... Our friend Dolores helped us talk to Isabel. So tell me about the health of, of you and of Josefa and
2: Juan.
3: She works hard uh,
11: for food every day. So what what do you eat during the day? Sometimes she goes to, to the mountain, and if she finds some wild herbs, that's what she brings to feed. The
3: children. I wanted to know how Diego's sister Julia died. Isabel said she had stomach problems that got worse because of an infection or a curse, but it wasn't clear. A lot of times, Isabel tells me stuff that doesn't make sense. Still, every time we're together, I feel a bond of mutual respect and affection. And it seemed like visiting Julia's grave was something we ought to do together. Julia reminded me so much of Diego. She was so sunny, and she laughed exactly like he does. Dan stayed at the hotel with Diego and the kids. Dolores, Isabel, and I got into a 3 wheel taxi called a tuk-tuk. The cemetery was partway up the volcano, overlooking the village and the enormous Blue Lake. It was a jumble of pastel tombstones and unmarked mounds of dirt. Julia's grave was covered with weeds. Isabel began yanking them out. I helped her pull weeds because it seemed like the right thing to do. When the grave was cleared off, Isabel stood at one corner of the mound with her back to the lake and began to cry. It sounded like it might have been a prayer. It was so mournful. Later, Dolores told us that Isabel was crying to Julia, calling out the memories they'd shared. She said poverty had always pursued them, that she tried to save Julia, but she couldn't. While we were at the cemetery, Dan and the kids were playing in the hotel pool. Dolores' son speaks Susuhil and English, and Dan could hear him translating for Diego and his siblings. When we got back from the cemetery, Diego told us he'd found out the real cause of Julia's death, and it wasn't a stomach illness.
2: One of my sisters died. I know how she died. Um, she still she was sick, and she still mangled, and um, her dad got really um out of control, and. He kicked her in the stomach and she died. But Diego, can you
3: tell us how you found that out? Because, you know, when we asked Isabel about it, Isabel told us that Julia had been sick and died. Is it because you asked? So did you say, like, what sickness did Julia have or something? Yeah, she got that kind of stuff.
5: And yeah, the way I remember it, you said, um, you said, what sickness did Julia have? And then they said, well, she didn't have a sickness. Her her papa uh, killed her. That's what they said. And then you said, what did he use?
2: His a, foot.
5: A gun or a knife or what? He
2: used his foot.
5: Right. And
2: What was her grave like?
3: Oh, well, you know, we have pictures of it. It was just a, a mound of dirt that was covered with weeds. So the first thing that we did when we got there is, um, especially Isabel was pulling up all the weeds to make the mound of dirt look nice. And Isabel was crying and maybe saying a little prayer. It was hard to understand. And what she said was, was about how Julia was always so interested in you and excited when she heard you were coming to visit. And that even though Julia's in another place, We're here at the grave to tell you that Diego is here to visit and we're thinking about you and we know you were thinking about him. She said that? That's what Isabel said. Sad. Are you being sad now, Diego? Okay. It's okay to be sad.
8: It's okay? I I think it's...
6: We
3: do wonder if this is too much for Diego, but Dan worries about it more than I do.
5: My view is that at the very core of his being is this sadness because he knows, you know, that he was separated from the, the place that he was born into.
3: I feel like, yes, there's sadness in Diego, and there's joy, and that makes him just like everybody else. But Dan and I do agree that looking this hard stuff in the face has helped Diego to be articulate about his own feelings and that he should know all there is to know about his circumstances. Also, by being in Santiago Atitlan, Diego knows what it means to be Tsutsuhil. He feels it. The people in his village taught him his Tsutsuhil name, Atiko. They tell him, never forget, you are Atiko. Wherever you go in the world, know that you are Tsutsu heel, and that's something to be proud of. <laughs> the last thing we did in Santiago Atitlan was to visit a god. His name is Mashmon. You pay a little money to a kid in the village and you ask where Mashmon is living at the moment. They take you to a dark, incense-filled room. When your eyes adjust, you see a bunch of men. They're called the Brotherhood, guarding a life-sized but legless wooden figure. Mashmon has a mustache and at least one cigarette sticking out from a hole in his mouth. Diego sat down next to Dolores in front of Mashmon while the Brotherhood and the other visitors looked on. And
11: this is um, Maximo. They call He's the holy grandfather. This is the main god for the Mayan from this village, the Mayan Tutu Hill. And people come here, they worship Maximum. They want a blessing from him for a studying, for a job, or anything they want to do.
2: Can
11: you ask um, the people that own Maximon, uh to tell them can I use it at any time? Ah. <laughs> 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 anytime, he said, this is your home, you can come anytime. Diego, you can come anytime to visit. Gracias. <laughs> Matios Chava, thanks to you. Can you say it? Matios Chava.
2: Matios Chava.
11: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> now that we're back, we visit Diego's Guatemalan family just through the photo album. Diego pulls it out a couple times a month, even though seeing Julia and the others makes him sad. But he loves knowing his Tsutsuhil name, Atiko, and being in Guatemala made him want to learn Spanish. We're not sure how Diego will deal with the difficult stuff he learned on the trip, but so far he's been his usual soulful and resilient self. We're already talking about when to go back.
0: As the number of international adoptees keeps rising, families will continue to struggle with questions raised by the meeting of rich and poor countries. Most people agree that in a perfect world, adoption wouldn't be necessary. Children would always stay with their birth parents and wouldn't lose their birth culture. Parents like Lori and Dan hope their children will grow up to find home in each world. Finding Home was produced by Sasha Aslanian, Ellen Gettler, and Michael Montgomery. It was edited by Katherine Winter, Project Manager Misha Quill, Mixing by Craig Thorson, Web Production by Ocean Kalin, Production assistance from Larissa Anderson, Carrie Byron, and Elizabeth Tannen, Special Thanks to Melody Ng, and Public Insight Journalism. The Executive Editor is Stephen Smith. The executive producer is Bill Buesenberg. I'm Deborah Amos. To see photos of Diego and his family and to listen to this program again, visit AmericanRadioWorks.org. There you can subscribe to our new podcast and email newsletter. You can also download this and other American Radio Works programs. That's at AmericanRadioWorks.org. Major funding for American Radio Works comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. American Radio Works is the documentary unit of American Public Media. American Public Media.